we are wrapping up a series today called Not That Church, where we've been looking at the seven churches in Revelation and the, the, the idea is how crazy it is that they actually overlap a lot like modern churches. For these distant letters that have been written so many years ago, they actually look a lot like some of the modern churches. And there's a warning for all of us, and there's also something encouraging for all of us to come out of here as Jesus writes these letters. And as we bring this series to a close today, I've got the great privilege to introduce our guest speaker today. Over eight years ago, when I first came on staff as a student pastor, I kept hearing about this great name. They're like, you should, this guy, he was awesome. He was a youth pastor before you and he was awesome. I was like, was he really that awesome? But I was like, no, he's, he was awesome. And I kept hearing about all these great things. And I was like, okay, I got to meet this guy. Two years ago, he walked into this space and I got to meet him for the very first time. And he lived up to all the expectation. He is the real deal. Uh, he, you guys are going to be blessed today. He's a great communicator. He's an educator. He is family here inside this space. He sits in these seats with you every week, listening and being a part of our church family. And I think you guys are going to be fully blessed. Will you guys give me a huge Alpine welcome to our guest speaker, Jeremy Pettit. He builds me up, and so I'm just going to knock myself down a peg just to start here. So uh, when I was 17 years old, I got a speeding ticket for drag racing, my girlfriend. Now, if you listen to me tell the story, I was the chivalrous one because I let the cop catch me because he was chasing both of us. And if you listen to her side of the story, I was the slower of the two of us, and she beat me, and that's why I got the ticket. And I'm 17, so I have to go uh, to court to pay for this ticket and admit that I'm guilty. And if you were happening now, you'd probably lose your license. But at that point, they were like, yeah, okay, whatever, you're 17. <laughs> I go to court. And I stand up, and everybody rise, and the honorable judge so-and-so walks in. And in that moment, when they announced his title and he walked up there and sat down, I had a serious feeling of respect and a tiny bit of fear because I thought this guy could throw me in jail. And he said, how do you plead? And I said, guilty. And he said, okay, pay the fine and leave. And I walked out of there as fast as I could. But I realized in that moment that, the, that when they had announced his title, that titles do something unique. They establish a relationship and set the expectations of what's supposed to happen in that relationship. For instance, most of you probably don't call your Dr. Steve. You call him Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones or whatever his name is. You don't refer to him by his first name. You use his title, and his title dictates your expectations. I'm coming to you with a problem. You need to help me solve it. I'm a professor at Moody Bible Institute. I teach communications. I have the elbow patches to prove it. <clears throat> and... Uh, when I walk into a classroom, my students call me professor because they expect that they're going to hand me assignments and I'm going to grade them and decide if they get to pass my class and move on. Most of them do. Most of them. But this is true throughout our life that the titles that we hear, coach and Mr. and Mrs. and Miss, and how all those titles that we put on each other actually start setting up what the relationship looks like and the expectations we have. Even down to something simple as mom and dad. You have expectations about what mom and dad mean. You bring something broken to mom and dad, they'll take care of it and fix it, although you'll probably get in trouble. You destroy their house, eh, 
you'll probably have to clean it up. But mom and dad are the ones who take care of us. So when I started uh, reading through the, the list of the churches in Revelation, I realized that every single time that Jesus talks to one of the churches, he gives them a different title. Because he's trying to establish a relationship with that group of people, and he's trying to set some expectations for what he's about to say next, which is crucial. Because when we get to the church at Smyrna today, it says to the angel of the church at Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. This is the start of the relationship and the expectations that God is trying to set with this church at Smyrna. And so when Dave handed this to me, I went, great, I get the one about death. Thanks, Dave. Um, But here's the thing. Smyrna is a really serious situation at this particular point in the world. Smyrna was uh, located in what is currently Turkey, and it's a port city. It's established by Alexander the Great. His generals built it. By the time of the Roman Empire, it is enormous. In fact, uh, according to ancient historians, it is the largest marketplace in the unknown world. It is an extremely wealthy place. It is a place that's supposedly extremely beautiful. Most of the ancient historians note those two things, as well as the fact as it's renowned for science and medicine, because they grew myrrh near there, which is a, uh, a way to embalm bodies, but also to create healing. Smyrna, not unlike a port city very near here, was largely run by unions, guilds of people who worked with silver and gold and leather. And I'm not making commentary on unions, so please don't come and send me letters later. But in those unions, in those guilds, you had to sacrifice to a god, the god that the guild worshipped, or else you weren't allowed in. And later, when the Romans came, they started worshipping the emperor, so you had to sacrifice to the emperor if you were going to be part of their guild. If you were a Christian in Smyrna, you were going to have to make some really hard choices about what you believed. The gospel comes to Smyrna, apparently, according to tradition in Acts 19. It says that Paul had gone to the city of Ephesus, and from there he spread the gospel all over Asia Minor. Smyrna is about 40 miles from Ephesus. But we know that persecution was a really serious part of the experience in Smyrna for Christians. See, the next verse, when Jesus is talking to them, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know that you're being persecuted, and I know that you're being left out of the economic life of the city. But you're redefining this wrong. You're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, there's debate among scholars about what this means. Was this a group of Jews who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, or was this a group of Gentiles who were trying to live as proselyte Jews and essentially keep the law, but who were not any way, shape, or form Jews. However, history holds that the author of this book, John, had a direct disciple, one of his close friends named Polycarp, and Polycarp was killed in Smyrna by a group of Jews. This is a serious, serious situation. Jesus says, I recognize that this is hard. There's pain and there's suffering. And if you're going to get a voicemail from Jesus, you wouldn't want the one that says, hey guys, pain and suffering is here and it's probably going to be a lot more very soon. 
You'd be like, can I get one of the other voicemails that he sends out? Because I don't really want to hear pain and suffering is coming. We don't like pain and suffering. We don't want to hear that. Pain, pain's not fun. Pain has been our experience since the fall. Before the fall, we have no record of pain, and yet as soon as Adam and Eve fall, pain comes into the world. Pain in childbirth and pain in toil. And that pain ultimately would lead to death. Now, practically, we all understand this. The moment that you all stub your toe, the entire universe ceases to exist, and all you can think about is that throbbing big toe, and you're like, I can't think about anything else because this hurts so much. Or you get a headache, and it starts off low, and then it starts to escalate a little bit, and you start feeling like it's a migraine. And then you start questioning and thinking, maybe this isn't a migraine. Maybe I'm having a stroke. Oh my gosh, maybe I have a brain tumor. Maybe this thing's going to kill me. Just take an Advil. It'll be okay. Why? Because pain points us to death. It always makes us ask the question, is this going to kill me? And I should know. Because I've been through a few things, painful things. I've broken my ankle. I've had stitches in my face. I have a torn pectoral muscle. I've had shingles. Yes, a few of you are like, oh, no. I've had kidney stones. Which all the people in here, all the women, please understand, if they say that's the closest thing to giving birth, recognize I have a tremendous level of respect for you. Because I've never used the name of Jesus in my life as a prayer when I was screaming it. Jesus! I was not swearing. I was praying. I just wanted it to end. I've had three surgeries, one of which I wasn't supposed to survive. I get pain. I get the fact that it makes us ask the question, is this going to kill me? Because that's what pain does. Pain reminds us of what we've come to believe is a universal truth, something very simple that we all live with and recognize even if we don't want to talk about it. Ready? It's really simple. It's a simple phrase that says, I am going to die. I'm going to die. So I was born into this world and I'm going to live roughly about 80 years That's your entire life right there. That's it. That's the whole story. Because here's the thing. This is, you know, we'll call this the midpoint. This is 40, which is right about where I am, a little bit on the other side of that, and looking at this and thinking, wow, that's getting a lot closer, a lot faster than I care to admit. There's some of you who are sitting at 60 going, what are you talking about? Do you realize how close I am already? There's some of you who are 20 who are all going, just shut up. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. And then there's a few teenagers in here who are like, it's okay, honey. You'll get there. And here's the thing, this story of death, that you are born and that you are going to die, informs every part of the human experience. It informs the major questions that we all ask, right? What's the purpose of life? Why am I here? What happens after death? All those questions that we wrestle with, all the questions that are the ground of all philosophy everywhere are really just about this one sentence. But what if it's not actually the right sentence? 
See, I'm a communications professor, and the moment you sign up to do that, they invest for you in red ink, red pens, because you're going to spend a lot of time correcting grammar and punctuation. You all loved that when you were in school, right? Getting a paper back that looked like it bled to death on your teacher's desk. And I started looking at this phrase, and I started realizing that maybe we had not necessarily written the sentence wrong, but we had a problem with punctuation. What if the death of Jesus on the cross, instead of saying, I am going to die, that after three days in the tomb, it was no longer a period? What if... It was an ellipsis. An ellipsis is a unique form of punctuation that essentially pauses a sentence to say, I said something, we're going to pause here for a second, and then we're going to move on with the rest of the sentence. Because there's more to the story if we're going to write birth and death. It doesn't look like the one below. It looks like... this. Now, they look similar with one clear exception. This one goes on for a while. So I thought, well, I've got to explain to you eternity in the next 20 minutes. Shouldn't be too hard, right? So I want to do a grand human experiment and see how good you are at passing things. Just one thing. So here's what I want you to do. I would like, can you take this? You're gonna pass this long ball of string all the way around the front row and all the way back. And we're gonna pass it so every single person in here has a piece of string in front of them. Now, here's a couple of rules. Uh, please don't make it tight. I don't need to like snap in someone's face and then that pain and suffering we were talking about now becomes part of your experience. Please don't wrap it around anything. I don't need you having that moment of maybe death is coming sooner because I wrapped this around my neighbor's head. <laughs> if it snaps, it's okay. Just tie it back together. We'll keep the metaphor going. It's only a metaphor. It's not actually eternity. <laughs> but here's the thing. Some people believe that after death, time ceases to exist. And yet I don't actually find that to be true in the scriptures. The scriptures don't say that time ends if we jump ahead in Revelation to Revelation chapter 6, we see a series of seals that's been opened. One, two, three, a progression. You get to chapter 6, verse 10, and it says that there are martyrs, people who have been killed for their faith, who sit in the altar and cry out to God, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? So the people in heaven are aware of time and talking like a group of children, like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How long till we get there? How long until you do this? Because we've been sitting here a while. How long? Why? Because time still exists. Jump ahead. Revelation 20, a thousand-year reign of Christ, a millennium. Now, there are scholars that want to debate, is this an actual thousand years? Is this just a long period of time? It doesn't matter. He used time to describe it. And then jump ahead to verse or chapter 21, and it says, there was an old heaven and an old earth that passed away, and a new heaven and a new earth that were brought about. 
if I have an ice cream cone and I eat my ice cream cone and I finish my ice cream cone and then I get a new ice cream cone and I get to eat that, we've walked through time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians and he says this. He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of the archangel, with the voice of God, with a trumpet call. And the dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are alive will go up to meet him in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And verse 18 says something fascinating. Encourage one another with these words. We will be with the Lord forever. Not time doesn't exist. Time unending. So how do I convey time unending to a room of people in like 30 minutes? Well, first I start with 10,000 inches of string. So that's about what it's going to take to cover this place. 10,000 inches of string. And if I did my math right, there's some math people who are going to come up and talk to me afterward, I'm sure. Then a decade represents roughly about seven inches, which means about 10,000 inches of string, give or take, is about 1,500 years. 1,500 years from now, it will be 3,519. You will probably not, if Jesus does not come back, drive to church in a car because that will be an ancient history device. And if email still exists in 3,519, I quit. I just don't want to, that's, come on. 1,500 years of email, really? Couldn't think of something better by then? But here's the thing. That's not actually enough. So what I've asked is that when you finish passing this, they're going to take this ball of string and they're going to take it out the door. Now, by the way, just to be careful, so all of you know, you can still feel free to spread this string out as much as possible, because when I calculated, it was around 1,000 feet. I brought 12,000 feet. That's like two miles of string. If you live within two miles of here, we can walk this to your house. But let's imagine for a moment that this uh, ball of string is actually magical, and it will take off and fly from here to the end of the universe. The end of the universe is a roughly 46 billion light years from here. By the way, just for all of my science people, remember, light years is not actually about time. It's about distance. And all of you can make your string theory jokes after the sermon. Like four people got that. So how long would it take, and I did some digging, how long would it take to go 46 billion light years to the end of the universe? Using our current technology, any guesses how long it'd take to get to the end of our solar system? It's actually less than you probably think. Any guesses? No one? No one wants to know? 30? Anyone else? 100? 40. Bingo. 40 years to get from here to the end of the solar system. Which then I thought, like, if you put a little kid in a rocket from here and there and he actually managed to get back, they'd spend their entire life on that board going to the end of the solar system and coming back. Which means they get back to Earth and never experience gravity just in time probably to die. That would be weird. Sorry, it's the random little things my brain thinks of. Next, how long would it take to get to the nearest star? Uh, 80,000 years. 80,000 years, longer than all of recorded human history, 80,000 years, to get from here to the nearest star, to get from here to the nearest galaxy, 
is 749 million years. 749 million years. And to get to that 46 billion light years away, it would take 225 trillion years. 225 trillion years. That's 12 zeros. I had to check how many zeros it was. But here's the thing. You and I will still exist 225 trillion years from now. Just for all you math friends who like all this fun stuff with it, I just want you to go home and try a little math on 225 trillion years divided by, I'm doing this terribly, infinity. Do you know how long that is when you do the division? It's nothing. 225 trillion years is nothing if you do the math against infinity. That's why when we try to describe this moment, we have to go to things like poetry and art. So the poet, King David, says that our life is a breath. It goes so fast, a vapor, and then it's gone. But he's not talking about our life in all of this. He's talking about our life right there. I couldn't give you better words than C.S. Lewis, so I will just quote him. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, arts and civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. To understand this, to grasp how big and how wide and how amazingly long eternity is, and to really put it into perspective, I, the only person I can ever describe to you who helped me understand it was an eight-year-old boy in Kenya. See, I had the privilege of going with Awana to... Um, See a club in Kibera, which is one of the largest slums in the entire world, a very difficult place to live. And this little boy uh, was in a club, and they were doing all these fun games and everything else, and the leader came up and said, these two little boys would like to meet you. And I said, sure. I love meeting kids and hearing their stories. And so right before he brings them up, he says, oh, and by the way, they both have AIDS, and they're going to die in a couple years. I'm like, well, you could have told me that earlier. And they ran up and they started telling me about their game and I started asking about their story and I started engaging with them and they were smiling. And one of the little boys looks at me and he says, you know that we have AIDS. And I said, yeah, I, I heard that. And then he smiled. And I said, why are you smiling? He said, don't you know? I'm going to get to see Jesus. And he smiled, this big smile, and I thought, I don't know how your smile could get any bigger. He said, you, you don't know that this world isn't my home? I wasn't meant to be here like this. And I went, you're eight years old. How do you know that? 
How do you grasp the existential, philosophical, theological gravity of everything you just said? I didn't say that to him because I don't know if he'd understand half those words. <laughs> but he smiled at me again, and this time, I got the feeling like he was smiling at me like he was going to beat me in a relay race to heaven. <laughs> and I'll be honest, I was a little jealous. I told my students all the time, listen, I am trying to get to heaven ahead of you. I'm not putting any barrier between me and I'm not going to take my own life. Don't hear that. I'm not going to do that. But if he decides that I get to go to heaven in two weeks, I beat you there. Why? Because this is not that. This experience that he has planned for us is so much better and that little kid knew it better than anybody I'd ever met. And in that moment, it made me rethink every single thing that I was experiencing. I was sleeping in a foreign country in a bed that wasn't that comfortable. And I was probably like, I don't know if I like all this food. And it was like, why does this matter? When all of this is what's to come. And living in this perspective made me realize that the world that we live in right now takes this story as a universal truth and bases its values on it. It says things like, YOLO, you only live once. So do whatever you want. Because it doesn't matter, because this is it. If that's it, then do whatever you want. Right and wrong, to, to say something is right and wrong is really just intolerant, frankly, because we should all get to decide what's right and wrong because it's just this story here, this part of the board. The board's all there is. So right and wrong are relative. They don't matter. And there's no absolute truth, by the way, because realistically, if this is all there is on the board, there can't be any higher thought, any higher capacity, any higher being to answer to. So they base their sets of values on these concepts that are built around the notion that I am going to die with a period on the end. I'm not going to live forever, so let's just make the most of this. But here's the thing. When you and I, as Christians, start telling them that there's more to life than this, do you think they're going to like that? Oh, wait, I have to account for all of eternity. No, probably not that interested. They're not going to like that. We need to hear the words that Jesus said to the people of Smyrna because we find ourselves in a very similar situation. And while he's not chastising them, he's trying to encourage them because we are similar to them in what we're about to face. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, which is a short time. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. We live in a world that missiologists and theologians are beginning to acknowledge is less interested in Christianity. Our favored position is fading. 
And the group of people who are actively opposing us is growing. And we should anticipate that the moment that we tell the world that the story that they're saying with all the values that go along with it is not true, they're going to oppose us. They're going to exclude us. They're going to try to hurt us. This is persecution. Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, you're going to get left out. You're going to get people who say mean things and hurtful things about you for my sake. Because you refuse to believe that this is the only story. You're telling them that there's a whole different story that involves a lot more. You should expect they're not going to like this. And this is hard to hear. Because it's saying, look, it may even result to the point of death. It may end you. But if you live in this story and persecution kills you, well, then that would be the end. And what would be the point of that? But if you live in this story and persecution ends what's on the board and opens all of this, then all pain and suffering are temporary. These are light and momentary trials that work out for us a greater good. This is the frame of reference for the entire New Testament. So you hear Jesus when he's preaching say things like, listen, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, to their story, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not love the world or anything in the world. All of these things are going to pass away. Think about all of the things that are in front of you that you're holding in eternity right now. Does it mean that it's easy? No. Why? Because we live in this world and this world is constantly trying to wear us down to its values. It's constantly trying to tell us this story and get us to live in it. It's constantly trying to get us to buy more stuff, to spend way more time thinking about this place than thinking about the rest of eternity. The world's story is overwhelming sometimes. So how do we, as believers in Jesus Christ, work through this? Two things. One, you read the scriptures. The scriptures begin to train your mind to think about this story the way Jesus and the apostles thought about it, in light of eternity and not in light of the story that the world's telling. And two, really, really important you spend time in community with other believers reminding and encouraging one another. You need each other. We need one another to just have those moments to say, but, but what about eternity? I know we're struggling right now and I know the pain is real and I'm not denying that the pain is real. I, the person who have experienced it, am not denying that the pain is real. But I'm also here to tell you that the pain is never wasted that God uses it always. And that if we live in this story, 
that says that eternity is God's intention for us, then now we have to start making some different choices. Now we have to start thinking differently about how we live. And for some of you, you may not be a Christian. You may not have placed your faith and trust in Jesus. You may say to yourself, hey, listen, I've never heard this. This isn't my thing. Let me be clear. Uh, you don't get to decide that you're not going to live forever because you are. You don't get to say, well, I'm going to live this story and my life will be over when I die because it won't. You will live forever, immortal, horrors or everlasting splendors. And the scripture, and I don't want to leave this out in verse 11, says this, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. That word second death in Greek is a reference to hell. We don't like talking about hell. We don't like even saying the word sometimes. But hell is actually a lot simpler than we want to admit. Hell is actually God's ultimate sign of respect for humans' capacity to make choices. He says, you have two choices. You can be God, or I can be God. Which one? And if you say, I want to be God, he says, okay, I respect your choice to be God. However, let me just point something out. I will leave you alone for all of eternity to be God. But I'm taking Everything good, light, beauty, truth, warmth, fellowship, community, all those good things, they're mine. So good will come with me and you will be left with whatever is left. Whatever you can create out of your own power for eternity will be all you have. And trust me, when all the good left, that is hell. Being alone, being in despair, being constantly in pain, being constantly feeling like something's going to happen and never being able to get away, being afraid all the time. That is all of the things that happen when good leaves. And he will respect your decision. You can be there. You can choose it yourself. You can be your own God. I'll let you have it. Go for it. Whatever you can make, you can keep but you can't make anything good because he is all good. There's nothing left for you. I don't want this for anyone. And that's why he called us to spread the good news that this eternity is now open for 225 trillion plus years of life of freedom, of joy, and beauty, and light. It's yours when you place your faith and trust in him. And if you're sitting here today and you've never heard this and you want to talk more about it, please come talk to me in a few minutes. I would love to tell you more about this story. And if you can't talk to me, there'll be other elders up here to share the story with you as well. But as Christians... We have a hope that transcends this life that we see on the board, that transcends all of the things that we have imagined because it says in the scriptures that the love of God is higher and wider and more vast 
than anything we've imagined. Hold up the string. Look around. See how much string is in here? This is nothing. This isn't even close to eternity. This is the thing that you look toward. The author and the finisher of our faith has promised us an eternity of life unending. That's why he says to us, Words like, these are light and momentary trials that are working out greater good. That's why he encourages us to constantly be having in mind your affections on things above, not on things of this earth. That's why he's constantly trying to get us to see that he is the one who is the first and the last, the one who rewrote this story so that I am the one who died and came back to life again. I'm the one who retells your story so that it goes on for eternity with God. And it's an amazing experience. So here's what I'd like you to do. Hopefully by now everybody's got a piece of string. In front of you, there's a little bit, there's scissors or under your chairs. You take it out. You're like, oh man, he made us spread this whole thing out. Yeah, spread it out. Now cut a piece of it. Yes, you're like, oh no, we ruined eternity, but this is your life. Some of you are like, wow, that's a really long piece of string. Please don't cut it super short. You're like, oh no, you're having an existential crisis because it's only three inches long. Just be generous. This is your life. Does it matter? And my response to you is, yes, it does. Because we could simply say, hey, you know what? We're going to think all about eternity, but we're not actually going to think that this place matters anymore and you couldn't be more wrong. You know why? Because you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You are the ones who have experienced the love of God and are put here to communicate it to other people around you. You And I, my friends who have pushed your faith and trust in Jesus, are the people of God who have been called out of darkness and into light that we could show forth the praises of him. You and I, we were put here to tell people that that story down there isn't the end, that we live in our peace of eternity Because it matters. Because there are others who right now don't know that eternity is open to them. This life matters. He has you here for a reason. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. You could take this piece of string home, put it in your pocket, accidentally forget about it, and it'd have one wild ride through the washing machine before it got into the dryer and probably just turned into shreds and fell apart. Or you could actually use it for an old custom. See, there's an old custom that you tied a piece of string around something to remember. 
So I want to encourage you to put this string somewhere you can see it. Put it in a Bible. Put it in a journal. Put it somewhere you can see it to remind yourself. Remind yourself that this is a piece of eternity, not all of it. To remind yourself that there are people who desperately need to hear the gospel. The truth that there is eternity awaiting us and that they have a choice as to how they spend it. To remind yourself to pray for those people who you know need to hear this. To remind yourself, like my little Kenyan friend, that one day, soon, you will see Jesus. And I love all of you. But the moment I get there, I'm pushing all of you down to get to him. Because that's all I want. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one who is eternal and who has loved us so much that you stepped into human history and rewrote the sentence, I am going to die to open promises of eternal life to me that I could never have opened for myself. And God, we pray today that you would help us to live ever present in the moments that you've given us, living in the strength and life and power of your son, Jesus. with a view of eternity in mind always. That we may live in the light of an eternal perspective that reminds us that this world is not our home. That we were meant for so much more. And we pray these things in the name of your son who we can't wait to see. Amen. <laughs>